Hey, it's Alex Pearson on point. Today on our podcast, Doug Ford says COVID testing at pharmacies is coming soon, but how will it work? We will talk with one in the industry that says, yes, it can work, but it is not without controversy and concern about safety. We'll also talk about a massive lawsuit that could be launched against the NHL and junior hockey leagues, alleging they're part of a conspiracy to exploit teenaged players. We'll also get the story behind how a fugitive suspected of Ontario mob murders ended up dead in Mexico. Here we go. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? There's going to be some severe, severe fines for people who want to ignore uh, the, the regulations and the guidelines, so it's going to be severe. They're going to be the highest in the country, and they're going to be under provincial jurisdiction. It's not going to be under uh, federal jurisdiction, so we'll make sure that uh, they're followed through. Yeah, all right. Break the rules, and Premier Ford says he's prepared to break your bank, but, you know, talk's cheap, and so far that's all we have gotten. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, September 16th. Hope you're all well. I'm on the eve before I send my seven-year-old back to school. We're all very excited. He could not be more excited. Um, You know, but look, watching these numbers. And I'm just at this point hoping the schools stay open past next week. But for now, I feel okay because it's a small school and they've done everything possible, I think, to keep the kids safe. So I'm going to take it day to day because really that's all we can do. And ultimately, I am not going to wait for the government to tell me what's safe and what's not. I think parents really shouldn't be relying on the government to tell them what to do. I think decide at your own comfort level. But here we are, you know, we're barely into the school year and, um, you know, kind of it, it looks like those in charge are chasing, I think, what should have been in place a lot earlier. I mean, you ask yourself, how is it that we've got these mile-long lineups at testing centers across the province? I mean, why are they not on every block? Why do we not have home test kits that the United States has been using for months? Oh, well, because Health Canada isn't sure if they want to get them out there. You know, they're going to move at a snail's pace. So the premier was asked today quite bluntly, you know, were you caught off guard? We weren't caught off guard. Uh, we, we had uh, some of the lowest cases. We were under 100 for weeks. And literally overnight, as, as, as I was mentioning up here numerous times, the second wave is, is coming. Uh, we're prepared to get everything ramped up in a matter of days that we're doing. We're going to have more testing uh, areas than anywhere in the country, bar none. Not, not a couple hundred, a couple thousand Uh, additional testing areas to make it convenient for people. Well, that's great. I mean, the problem, though, is that it should be all in place now. We've had months, and we were told they'd be in place when the kids got back to school. And I think those in charge, you know, underestimated the fatigue of this thing and the moron factor. And there are a lot of people out there who still think this thing's a whole hoax. So they just don't care. They just don't care. They'll never care. They'll never care of the consequences. And that's because, well... They don't really care. So they've just been allowed to party like rock stars, consequence-free. I mean, we all needed a break over the summer, but I really do think that uh, those in charge 
allowed a lot of us to feel like, you know, we can do whatever we want. You know, we've got it in control. And so people did. I also think the messaging has been just way, way too complicated. Dr. Tam and Dr. Williams, I'm sure, are lovely, nice people. But they're terrible communicators. Terrible. You've got to be able to connect with people. you got to keep it simple, stupid. You've got to make them understand. And you've got to be able to connect with the very group driving the surge that we're seeing in cases. And so I think it's great that the Ford government's now warning big fines are coming. But look, they have to enforce it. And so far, they have not. And until they do, behaviors are not going to change. I mean, if bylaw officers are too scared to go into large gatherings, which is what we're told, if they're not willing to go in and issue fines, get rid of them. That's a good way we can save some money on the bottom line, but that's your job. If you can't do it, get rid of them. But what will bigger fines accomplish if officers won't issue them? And I think the only way you're going to change behavior is by, by hitting people where it hurts, which is, of course, the pocketbooks. And this should have happened months ago. And it's not, you know, for me, this is not about losing all our freedoms. There's a fine line here. And, and the second I think our liberties are at stake, I, trust me, I'll make a stink. But if, you know, if folks can't do the basics of what we're being asked, which is, yes, wear a mask, don't party with 100 friends. I mean, if you can't just help society at large, just to help the businesses stay open, just to keep the kids in school then you deserve a whopping fine because we are seeing the numbers every day. And now I'm just wondering how accurate are they? Because wait times at testing centers in Ontario, I mean, in some places in Ottawa, they're eight hour lineups here in Toronto, three to four hours. And I bet, I bet a lot of people aren't even bothering to go who goes and waits, you know, hours and hours on end. A lot of people will say, eh, can't be bothered. So we could be, you know, seeing a lot of cases fly under the radar. And widespread testing, as they did in Taiwan in those very early days, you know, the country that only got seven deaths and barely any illnesses. Remember that? Well, they did widespread testing. It is absolutely crucial to manage this thing. And so here we are six, seven months in. And did no one think over the last couple of months, you know, we should probably get testing centers up all over the place. Make it as easy for people as possible. I mean, shouldn't those conversations with pharmacies, shouldn't those happened a long time ago? Because even if a pharmacy can, you know, pick up the slack, it's going to take weeks to set up. It's going to take time to train the staff. And by then, like, who knows where the numbers are going to be. And of course, the guy known as Dr. Dirk, he was asked today, like, where are we headed, like, in the next couple of weeks with the numbers, and he doesn't know. I don't think we know right now what the numbers are going to be next week, and it's difficult to predict. I can say that we've seen increased numbers, and that's, that's very disappointing and, frankly, uh, distressing, as it is for everybody. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to recognize the importance of all of us doing our part to take steps to be aware, to think about what we're doing, and to take the opportunities to prevent transmission, prevent infection. Just do your part. Just do your part. You know, all we're being asked to do is kind of the bare minimum, which right now is like, don't be a greedy goof. 
wear a mask when you're in public. You don't have to wear it in your car. You don't have to wear it in your house. Just wear it when you're going into a store. Wear it if you're around a lot of people. Wear it in public. Don't throw ragers with a hundred buddies. And don't throw a wedding. I, I, first of all, save a lot of money on a wedding and go to City Hall. I know, you know, you can do it for 50 bucks. That would be my advice. But four weddings in, in just the last couple of weeks caused 22 cases. They didn't care. Now I just, I just read, just read breaking news. A school in Pembroke's been shut down. The first school to be shut down because, oh, what happened? Oh, an infected teacher came to school with symptoms of COVID and three others caught it because, oh, they weren't wearing masks. They were around kids, ignoring basic rules. And if that's true, they should be absolutely suspended without pay because they've known longer than anyone the risks. And if they were breaking the rules, suspend them without pay. Fine them, because that's ridiculous. I mean, we're not asking a lot. We're not Australia where they're busting into your home and arresting people who are posting anti-mask uh, postings as opinions on Facebook. You just asked, do your part. Don't be irresponsible. And, and maybe the age driving this sur surge, I think they should keep in mind, they were handed billions in aid to help them get through the summer, to help with the financial situation. Students got $9 billion from the Trudeau government. There was the SUR program, which a lot of them took. A lot of them didn't bother to go to work because of it. They got more help than businesses. I mean, is it asking too much now that you do your part for society at large so maybe some of the businesses that didn't get that aid can survive? I don't, I don't think so. And a lot of you will say, well, this is all fake. It's just an exaggeration. Okay, well, sure, say that. But it doesn't change the fact that the cases are going up and community spread is going to get a shutdown and keep kids home, to which a lot of parents are going to be suffering for it. And uh, I was supposed to interview Aaron O'Toole today, and it got canceled. It got canceled yesterday, and now we learn he and his team are in isolation after a member of his team tested positive for COVID. So he and his family are now in lockdown. The staff are in lockdown. Anyone he came into contact with has to get checked. I mean, he just met with Premier Legault on Monday. But then the uh, the other side of this is the whole Bloc Québécois party is in isolation after Francois Legault's wife tested positive for COVID-19. And of course, this is happening. We are now one week away from the throne speech. So this poses a number of challenges like what happens when a bunch of opposition members, especially the uh, Bloc who wants to take the government down, what happens if they can't vote next week? Because the Senate chamber, it's not wired to do virtual voting. I mean, why in 2020 with, what, five, six months behind us? Why would they bother to get that done? So no one really knows what this means. I mean, it would be awful, uh, an awful look for the liberals to exploit this, but we've never actually seen a prorogation extended. So, but hey, it's not normal times. So, so that's where we're at now. And so in the next couple of days, we're going to get news about more restrictions in these hot zones. But uh, the bottom line is, months into this thing, you got to wonder, why are we already back in this position way earlier than we were expected to be? Well, getting a test for COVID-19 means some very long lineups. I mean, we're talking up to eight hours long in some areas. Um, the Apparently, the lineups across the province go around the block. And um, not only is uh, Ford now going to be forced to set up more testing centers, but it's renewed calls for more access to testing. One of those calls is for you know pharmacies to administer tests. This is something Alberta has done. 
and something Doug Ford said they are looking into. And this would be for people who are asymptomatic, so they've had no exposure to the virus. And I think, you know, okay, it's a no-brainer. It would ease a lot of strain. It's an opportunity for pharmacists to do more because they can do more. But there is debate on this as far as, you know, what risk it puts people at in the stores and those who do the tests. James Morrison is a pharmacist for more than a decade now and also provides operational support for independent pharmacies. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you, Alex. Happy to be here on the radio with you. Well, you know, pharmacists can do a lot more than just prescribe drugs. And I think it's a good idea to, you know, use them if they can, in fact, ease and get widespread testing, which is so crucial in, you know, containing and dealing with COVID-19. What are the um, pros of, let's get to the pros. Can pharmacies actually do this? Yeah, absolutely. Pharmacists could uh, step up to do this here in Ontario. And certainly it's already happening in Alberta. What are, you know, what are the good things? I mean, are pharmacists trained to do this? Do they feel safe? I mean, what has the reaction been from pharmacists as far as doing this and expanding the service in Ontario? You raised two uh, very good points there uh, about training and safety. So here in Ontario, the scope of practice for a pharmacist is somewhat different from what's happening in Alberta. Out in Alberta, those pharmacists have already been doing point-of-care testing or even, you know, lab tests for patients for a number of years because they have what's called an advanced prescribing authority out there. So pharmacists actually can do more for their patients than here in Ontario. Here in Ontario, it would be a bit of a learning opportunity if we were to offer asymptomatic tests like we're doing in Alberta. That involves um, swabbing the back of the throat is what they're doing in Alberta. And pharmacists here in Ontario have, for most of us, no experience with that. So it would involve a bit of a learning. I, I don't think it's a lot to learn to conduct that test safely and appropriately, but it would be uh, part of the um, unveiling of this program would be training the pharmacists to offer the test. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, like pharmacists throughout this pandemic have been trying to limit folks coming into the pharmacy as much as possible. So there's been a lot of pharmacists offering curbside pickup or delivery to your home so that, you know, the pharmacy could be protected from potential infected individuals coming into the the business and spreading the virus to, you know, staff or patients. It's something we're all concerned about. And there is concern that um, folks, you know, electing to have an asymptomatic test might present at a pharmacy and they're not truly asymptomatic. They, they didn't, um, you know, screen appropriately to um, be maybe fully truthful about their symptoms. Or there's even some cases of COVID-19 where we have active cases that are not showing symptoms. Right. So pharmacies are concerned in general about more traffic being directed into those premises. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, know, you could have allergies and think, okay, I've got COVID-19 and then you rush off to get a test. But it's, again, it's allergies. I think there's a lot of confusion for people of what is the symptom and when do I go to get tested? But I mean, you've been hearing about the long lines there's around the block. Um, so it would ease a lot of congestion. But at the same time, as you say, it, it's more than curbside pickup. You'd have to go into the pharmacy to get tested. And therefore you put, 
you know, a lot of vulnerable people, if you've got elderly people going in there um, at, at risk. But is there no way that a pharmacy could set up, let's say, uh, a facility outside their branch uh, to do testing? I think that is a, a true possibility, Alex, that we could um, set up either on like the front sidewalk or in the parking lot facilities. However, you know, Canada, <laughs> we're about to head into winter very shortly. And I mean, there's all sorts of logistical problems with trying to heat a space outside the pharmacy through through the winter. Canada's, I mean, Ontario, we have a lot of very cold regions. It's not always warm here as the GTA that I'm used to. Yeah. One thing that that you said that kind of just pops out at me is that there would need to be some training. They've been doing this in Alberta for a while. And, you know, I've been wondering this for a while. Like, what have we been waiting so long for? I mean, I know that the premier said he's been talking to pharmacies, including Shoppers Drug Mart. And, and so I get the sense that they want to announce something soon. But what have they been waiting for? We've been in this thing for six or seven months. And I know pharmacies have been very vocal about, you know, doing more services because they can. But, you know, that training to me should have already been in place in those conversations a while ago. Yeah, that is an important question, Alex. And I think that's part of the reason why the pharmacy profession is somewhat hesitant. You know, some folks are very gung-ho to do this, but others are having some hesitance because, there is a bit of a learning curve there. Um, pharmacists do need to have some training and even the whole logistical process of ordering lab tests or submitting tests to a lab here in Ontario, pharmacies don't have relationships for the most part with uh, laboratories. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Alberta, those pharmacies are already, it's part of their routine of ordering labs and following up and submitting samples to the, the lab where that's another new piece logistically here in Ontario that we'll have to figure out. Oh, boy. And so there, you know, so what I'm hearing from you, I mean, what I hear from the premier is that, you know, we'll have something to announce any day. What I'm hearing from you is even if it's announced, it is not going to happen overnight. What's the timeline that that if we could do this in the pharmacies, um, you know, and of course the pharmacies that are willing to do it, what's the time frame we're looking at at a time when we need testing now? Yeah, that's a really important question, Alex. And we're not looking at overnight opening up pharmacies to begin testing COVID. Alex, uh, yeah, I would say for for getting some sites, we're probably looking at at least a couple of weeks if they're going to start with a pilot and iron out the kinks. And then I would think multiple weeks before we would have sufficient testing capacity at pharmacy. I, I think it's important to have these conversations and engage with those pharmacies that, that want to offer this service. There certainly is an appetite among Ontarians to have more options for testing sites. And our, our Canadian Pharmacists Association did a survey recently, and they found that um, a, a big group of Canadians would be comfortable having these tests from a pharmacist. So mm-hmm. 75% of those in this survey have 2,400 Canadians said they'd be happy to get that test from a pharmacist. And, you know, 68% of them would be happy to have that done at a community pharmacy. So there, there's, you know, a need to have more testing as we try and get back to a normal life and perhaps facing the second wave of this virus. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we, we really do need more testing and pharmacy might be one of those channels that we should be looking at closely here in Ontario. Well, I certainly wish those conversations had been happening sooner because uh, time is of the essence, but we'll continue to watch and see what happens. James, I appreciate your insight into this. You're very welcome, Alex. Nice talking with you tonight. That is James Morrison uh, speaking as a pharmacist and uh, part of the group that could administer tests, but it does not sound like it will be coming to a store quickly for you. This is an interesting headline because it asks this question. Did did the NHL and junior hockey leagues conspire to exploit teen players for their game knowing they didn't have the talent for the big leagues? This is the allegation at the center of an $825 million class suit action that has yet to be adopted, but it alleges top pro and amateur hockey leagues uh, exploited dream-chasing teens with one-sided contracts containing abusive restrictions on their young careers and then taking their money and time even when they knew they would not go pro. Lauren Honickman is our Global News legal expert, and the reason I wanted to talk to you, Lauren, is because you also are an avid hockey fan. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, this did is, you have uh, Did you have dreams as a boy that you were going to go pro? Uh, no, because I was a oh. very realistic person and still. <laughs> <today. laughs> there you go. And, but you know what? When you look at this, the, let let's just talk about what this lawsuit is alleging: an mm-hmm. unlawful conspiracy. And what we talk about in law about what a conspiracy is. You have to show that the defendants, in this case the NHL and the others, acted in combination, that they mm-hmm. intended to harm these these hockey players, and their conduct did cause harm to them. So you, that you're talking about that people, leagues, got together and basically conspired to injure these hockey players. So that by itself tells me that the, this is not going to be an easy lawsuit. But what are they alleging, Alex, in this conspiracy? What they're saying is, is that they're trying to basically imprison, you know, in quotes, young hockey players in, in, these, in these leagues where they're not going to be, you know, they're going to get nominal sums of money. Um, they're not going to be able to do or, or make money or do anything, or they'll never play in the league. And they're just using them for their own purposes. Um, it's pretty heady allegations. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy. And of course, you've you got to remember, this particular class action follows two other class actions dealing with minor hockey players but they were different. The, the other ones were talking about more from an employment law context, saying, you know, these, these kids are playing and you're not really compensating them properly from a, um, from a family, uh, from, a, from a, um, uh, an employment law point of view. Uh, it, it, this is totally different uh, than, than what we're talking about here. It's saying that the NHL and these other leagues got together and purposely conspire together to harm these kids uh, for their right. own purposes. Which which begs the question, what about the decades earlier when they got paid even less and, um, you know, it, it, there were even less regulations in check? But it's interesting. I don't know if this, this case will actually get approved. However, I mean, the argument in part is that Canada and the United States, these leagues, 
overwhelmingly, um, you know, knew that these players would not reach stardom in the pros. But there is no guarantee for stardom. I mean, it is so far and few. And so you have to beg the question, I mean, what were their parents telling them? I mean, it's not just money. Um, that you should be expecting. I mean, I, I'm, I know lots of parents who, you know, take their kids to hockey Saturday or whatever, drag the bag down or go every day, whatever. Yeah. Their kids love it. Some of them do think they're going to be stars. They might have potential in the beginning. Maybe their parents are, are feeding them that they're going to be stars, but they sure. bank on this. And you wonder, okay, uh, did no one manage expectations? We're, and that's right. But when think about this, Alex, and, and you know this when you're playing hockey as a kid. How many, every kid has that dream. That, that they're going to make it into the NHL, they're going to be there, but how many actually do? It's, it's a fraction. But what the lawsuit sport. is saying is they're saying, look, um, these players are not being represented by any player associations. They can't organize a group to negotiate collective bargaining agreements, and which is different, by the way, in Europe and Russia, where mm-hmm. pro clubs sign these young players to pro contracts and assign them to junior reserve teams, but they have associations, mm-hmm. therefore, representing them. They're saying the kids here just are they're, they're playing in these leagues. They've got nobody to represent them. They're not going to get um, – they're paid so much less. Uh, it's, it's minimal amounts. And, and most of them aren't ever going to get to the, to the NHL. And so the claim is, is naming the – look at who's named here. It's the NHL, the Western Hockey League, the Quebec Main, Major Junior Hockey League, the Ontario Hockey League, the American Hockey League, the mm-hmm. Eastern Hockey League. And hockey – I mean, it's, it's everyone saying that, that you all conspired together to keep these players where they are, knowing that they're going to be there – and uh, they're not they're, that they're basically not allowed to compete and and protect themselves like others. And so I, you know, I don't know. I mean, like I said, these th- this particular class action lawsuit is following these other class action lawsuits that talk about more things from an employment law point of view as to whether or not these these kids should should be allowed we're, we're getting minimum wage for example that was one of the problems saying that uh, western hockey league players for example one of these lawsuits were paid less than minimum wage required by law where they played and so yeah there there seemed to make sense there and that's why those lawsuits got settled this one though is a little different because you have that word conspiracy in there right and, yeah and, and, and that tells me that points to a, a mind of, of people getting together and saying, OK, how are we going to do this? Let's make sure we do this together. So we're really going to harm these kids for our own benefit. And uh, right. That, well, they're either going big or they're going to go home. But, you know, when you look through the list of allegations, you know, they talk about when a player signs these contracts with junior clubs, which happens once they're drafted. They're usually around 16 to 20, but right. the clubs apparently don't disclose restrictions, which uh, include penalties as high as five as high as five hundred thousand. If that kid goes on and to leave the club and go pro, let's say, or undermines their ability to negotiate. But the bottom line is there may not be an association that backs you, but these parents or those who are mentors or, um, you know, an elder can certainly at any time get in touch with a lawyer and say, before I sign this or, you know, um, you know, if we go down this route, what should I know about the fine print? I mean, the league may may very well be doing something wrong. I don't know. But, you know, I would never sign a contract until I'd had a lawyer look at the fine print. And that, that's, that's right. on I mean, the parent oh, no, or the oh, guardian. For sure. 
for sure. And um, you know, one of the things that the, exactly, and this, and the one, and that's why this lawsuit says that the overwhelming majority of players who who are growing up, whose parents are mentoring them, uh, will never reach the the well-paid, you know, professional leagues, and uh, they just spend numerous years playing for nominal sums of money. And they say, well, it's all to the financial advantage of the NHL and all these leagues. And but what happened? What happened to having fun? I mean, a lot of these people won't go pro, but they'll pick up a lot of skills. They'll play on Monday nights late, like you, Lauren, or Tuesday, whenever you play yeah. house league. A lot of people play to get the skills, or they just play because they love the game. It was a positive experience. They got to travel with a team. They got to bill it and, and live out of their home, which is a which is, you know, at that age. That is a growth experience, and so you didn't make it in the pros, but certainly there have to be some benefits and positives that can be taken from from those years. Sure, but but remember this though, and you're right, and and you sort of those are the kids that may know at an earlier age that they for sure aren't going to make it, but it's the ones that that would get drafted or the ones that you know that that think that they're going to be. You know, like uh, they still have that chance and they're just going to do whatever they can because that's their dream. They've been dreaming uh, the whole time. But if, you know, if, if their you dream or their parents, by the time you're 18 years old, like basically in North America, what they're saying is you play for the NHL or you play for free. That's 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 sort of the metaphor, right? It's if you don't make if you don't make it in the NHL, you're basically playing for nothing. And or you can go to Europe. After eighteen, you're not going to go play. You can't go play in the American Hockey League. You can't play in the East Coast Hockey League, and that's why the NHL is making it impossible for these players to sell their work elsewhere. So they have no right to choose where they go. That's the that's the idea behind this. Now, are they wrong about that? I don't know. They, they they may not be wrong about it, but is that a conspiracy? Is that well, I know an awful lot of young guys who got drafted back in the day, and they, they might not have gone to the NHL, but they did okay over in Europe. Yeah, no, no, and that's right, and that's what... Go that's play there, the, yeah. The, the lament saying, well, you know, if you're in North America, you play NHL or nothing, and I'll go play in some league in, in, in Europe, and hopefully, you know, I can do whatever I need to do there. So... Basically, there's a lot of players. There's, uh, I'm going to tell you this, Alex. There'll be a lot of players, uh, former players, who will be looking at this, and even players now who will be very, very excited and happy mm-hmm. about this and really feeling, you know, I'm sure if you talk to them, you talk to ex-coaches, etc., they'll tell you, I, I'm guessing, that, that they welcome this lawsuit. They think it's probably long, long overdue. I just don't know the legal legs that it will have, but it'll be very interesting to see. Yeah, and um, and if it does, in fact, move ahead, which I'm not sure it will, but uh, yeah, it, it will have. Right? Under yeah, it has uh, the implication to uh, the impact of possibly on on thousands and thousands of, of young players. Oh, sure. But uh, huge. It, huge. it certainly caught my headline. But nonetheless, I uh, yeah, appreciate it you chatting. Mine too. Yeah, I can't All get right. on the ice. By the way, just as an aside, I haven't played yeah. in six months because of COVID. And I'm well, go go ask Patrick Brown. Go play with go play with it on his ice. What's that? Doesn't he, doesn't he go go play with uh, Mayor Patrick Brown? Doesn't he play Patrick on? Uh, I know he's out in there. I'm just, I know. I'm just too. I'm too scared to do it, Alex. I admit uh, that publicly to get out on the ice, huffing and puffing with other old guys like me right now. Uh, anyway. you're a good geezer, but I appreciate you joining <laughs> me. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk soon. Okay, that's Lauren Honickman, and we'll uh, keep an eye on that and see if it moves forward, because again, it's just in its infancy. It has yet to uh, 
be accepted. Well, you can run, but you can't hide when you're in mob life. And the man accused of killing Angelo Musitano, who was killed uh, outside his Dundas home back in 2017 and was the younger brother to now murdered mob boss Pat Musitano, well, he's swimming with the fishes, so to speak. Uh, Michael Graham Cudmore is his name, and he was accused not just of killing Musitano, but also a woman named Mila Barberi, who was killed in Vaughan. She wasn't the target, but became collateral damage. And Cudmore, the intended tar- target, took off to hide in Mexico with another suspect in the killing. And that guy's name was Daniel Ranieri. He was an enforcer who was executed and uh, dumped in a ditch in Mexico back in 2018. But unlike his colleague, Cudmore was found dead inside a car back in June by a drug overdose. So not necessarily taken out, but taken out on part of the risk in the life of a mobster. But there are others accused in these murders who remain in hiding in Mexico, and it's safe to say they are likely dead man walking. Let us bring in Stephen Matelski. He is an organized crime specialist. He teaches the course on this particular issue out of Mohawk College. Good to have you, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me back, Alex. Well, I mean, it's safe to say this is a risky lifestyle, and, um, you know, it's all this inner interwoven web of... of of people who are somehow linked to each other and whether they're in the same mob or not, they generally don't come out alive of this. Are you surprised by this latest uh, revelation? No, I'm not surprised because even from my experience and even the police have said that the three accused, which one of them is Michael Cudmore, you know, responsible for not only the Musitano hit, but as you mentioned, Mila Barberi, and there was another intended target, Severio Serrano, that was injured but not killed a couple of years back, they're not major players. And that actually makes them at more risk, especially when they're involved with carrying out these mob-style executions on the streets on behalf of bigger players in the underworld who are kind of the masterminds. So when you have these lower-level players like a Cudmore who are committing these heinous crimes, they are just that much more expendable, you know, after after the, the crime has been committed and they're on the run especially. Yeah, and, and Cudmore actually died back in June, but it, it's just coming to light now, which is uh, curious, and I guess uh, we'll find out in time why. But the, the killing of Mila Barberi, this 28-year-old woman, it got a lot of attention because she was very young, and it was her boyfriend who was the target. Um, and her and his father is known as one of Canada's uh, cocaine cowboys, you know, alleged uh, to be involved in high-volume trafficking of the drug. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and that's the one tragedy with some of these organized crime hits, especially when they're carried out by these low-level, uh, you know, inexperienced shooters, I, I, I'm probably safe to say, because, you know, the intended target in that one with Mila Barberi was not her. It was Severio Serrano, whose father is Diego Serrano, a pretty high-powered uh, mafiosi in, in North Toronto. And, you know, the trend, unfortunately, is things have been sloppy. You know, we've seen uh, other innocent bystanders who've been, you know, caught up in some of these sloppy underworld uh, contracts um, and shootings that uh, have occurred in the last couple of years. Right. And one, and only one arrest has been made in connection into these murders. I don't suspect those arrests come easily, though, because a lot of times uh, they will take off and go into hiding and and, and knowing full well that it won't be the uh, the officers that get him, but but either their rivals or, or even sometimes within their own. 
Yeah, and it's funny you say that, Alex, because it's difficult to investigate organized crime homicides on Canadian soil or American soil for that matter. But when you look at uh, accused who have fled the country, especially Mexico, beautiful country, but unfortunately it's, it's riddled with uh, various drug cartels and the level of corruption is, you know, from top to bottom in, in a number of areas in Mexico. Not to mention the extreme, extremely high homicide rate, mostly attributable to the drug cartel. So to flee to Mexico is probably one of the most unsafe countries for a criminal fugitive to flee to. And we've seen that in the case of, of Danny Ranieri, who was found hogtied and murdered in a ditch in Mexico in 018, and who had uh, allegedly and supposedly hooked up with Michael Cudmore after he had fled in, I believe, March of uh, May of 2017. So it's difficult not only to investigate them here, witnesses aren't lining up to cooperate if there's if they know there's it's been an organized crime involved street level homicide. So it's even that much more difficult. And we're seeing that already with, you know, getting information through the Canadian embassy uh, with with the Mexican authorities. Yeah. And the other, um, you know, there has been the arrest made. So Jabril Abdallah is the one that has been arrested in connection with the killing of Musa Tano, as well as as Mila Barberi. His trial still uh, pending. His lawyer seems to think that uh, they're trying to draw out a fella named uh, Tomasetti, Daniel Tomasetti, out of hiding, also in Mexico. I, I don't, I don't see how how that would draw him out. No, and that's very difficult to discern because I, I, I'm not privy to that that firsthand knowledge with with Jibril Abdallah and as an attorney. But you know, Daniel, Daniel Tomasetti is one of the three accused with Jibril Abdallah and the late Michael Cudmore as of today. Um, even though he was killed back in June. We're just finding out now. You know, Mm -hmm. Thomas said he fled in January of 2018. And, you know, he's he's the only one that is still on loose. And I mean, I I would say that his his safety, if he is alive, is in extreme jeopardy. And I think, you know, the smartest thing for him to do is to, you know, turn himself back into Canadian authorities. Yeah, I mean, his family says they don't know where he is, but... uh... He's scared, uh, and, I, and I don't doubt that, but that is the, the, the job he chose to do, uh, and I guess you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Uh, but we have seen a series, especially in the last couple of, uh, like in the last year, certainly, we've seen a series of killings, there have been bombings, certainly arsons, we've seen that whole war going on with tow trucks across this province. It's very, very clear organized crime is alive and well, but also that there's a, a big power struggle uh, in play. I couldn't be more accurate, Alex, you know, since the, the whole catalyst to really the, the wheels of this violence occurring, even though it has always been historically present, was when Angelo Musitano was taken out uh, and murdered in his watered-down driveway in May 2017. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, really, that was really the writing on the wall for his brother Pat as well, with his property being targeted, his house was shot at, his SUV was torched in the driveway. There was an attempt on his life last year, which... Uh, he, he, he miraculously survived uh, being shot four times at close, close point blank, you know, range. And he was murdered this summer. So when you look at the really the downfall and demise of the Musitano crime family, it has since then really opened up. And, you know, we even saw violence a week after Pat's murder. Um, uh, one of his close associates, uh, Pino Avignon, Giuseppe Pino Avignon, his house was targeted and spray painted and, and two of the cars were were torched. So 
these are foreshadowing signs in the mafia in the underworld when when people uh, future intended targets when their property is being torched and their homes are being shot at this is usually an early precursor to an increase in violence that we typically see later on down the line and just quickly, and this may may not be something that can be answered quickly, but uh, there is a power struggle for for territory and turf, and to take, you know, top a top place. Where is that happening, and who is the power struggle between? Well, you have to look at the history of the connectivity with, you know, I'll talk about Hamilton being the epicenter. There has been long ties with Hamilton, Ontario, and Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Buffalo is obviously tied into New York City, where the five major mafia crime families have been for decades. And then you have Montreal and Toronto. You know, uh, the Musitanos were closely aligned with the Rizzuto crime family. And they had kind of, uh, Vito Rizzuto was kind of the, you know, the big brother to young Pat and Angelo. And when they had that street credibility of the Rizzutos backing them, you know, the Musitanos reigned kind of supreme in Hamilton after they had killed Johnny Pops Papalia. But when Vito died of cancer in 2015, that automatically removed kind of that safety blanket and that power backing that the Musitanos had in Hamilton. And you know what? We can actually see with the timeline, that's when all the violence really started because the Musitanos didn't have that power base and that backing they had for years with the Rizzutos in Montreal. Fascinating, very complicated world, but nonetheless still playing out uh, in uh, in our streets um, a lot. Uh, Stephen, I've got to go on that note, but I appreciate your insight and, uh, and, and expertise on this. Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Stephen Matelski joining us here tonight, and we'll wait for the next chapter. Who knows where that chapter will take us. That is your podcast for today. Of course, you can listen to us on Point Live Monday through Friday starting at 6.30 right through to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.